Kante Robinson on. He's got it in. And there's goal of the season, Frank Murphy. Giuliano Grazioli. Oh, absolute quality. I'm sure most people would say I was mad. Hello and welcome to the first ever Downhill Second Half podcast with me, Ian DL, our podcast producer, James Harrison. Hello. And in the most audacious free role since Edgar Davids on his Underhill debut, it's Craig Clayton. Number one, good afternoon. <laughs> right, so we're aware that this podcast is probably the best part of a decade late. Um, to give you context for those of you who aren't aware, Downhill Second Half was a website that ran from 2009 to 13 and was something of a light-hearted if often pretty downbeat uh, view on what it was like to support Barnet. Early in lockdown, we discussed maybe bringing back the old sites, which we now have, and to do something to indulge in a bit of nostalgia while we've all got a bit of extra time on our hands. And this is what we landed on. So this podcast is going to be a nostalgic look back on supporting Barnet FC at Underhill. The era we'll be focusing on is from around the mid-90s up to the final days at the ground in 2013. The three of us all started going at slightly different times, as you'll hear, but all met on the terraces of Underhill during the early 2000s, and we've got plenty of stories and memories that we hope you'll enjoy listening to. Giuliano Grazioli! Oh, absolute quality! Right, so going right back to the beginning, um, boys, what are your first memories of Underhill? What hooked you in, Craig? I think we'll go to you first, given uh, the time frame. I think, uh, so I... I thought about this in the week about what the the first memories were or first memory and I don't I just don't have one Barnet was um in and around the household for as long as I remember um you um you both probably know that my my dad and my uncle um used to do the Clayton and Clayton videos I think with Henry Strevens as well and so I I think that it was that Barnet and Underhill was just a way of a way of life and it's just a place we used to go to so I, I, when I thought about it, there's a few things that are, are, two, are probably three memories that kind of, as a picture for me, talk, said Underhill, said Barnet for me during that period of time. You've got no reason to know this, but um, my my mum um, back in 95, I can't remember when, 95, 96 sort of time, um, went on a, was, was doing a course to be a, a masseuse, um, a massager. And uh, she, as part of the, the course, she had to um, have, practical experience and she wrote to the football Barnet football club and asked um whether you know she could do effectively work experience there and she was she worked with the first team in the youth team um as, as a as the official masseuse um she actually um one of the people she she massaged in the youth team at the time was what's the fellow that went on to do so solid crew oh harvey harvey Jr., harvey the, yeah harvey jr she uh he was and she, she actually looked through the records he was one of them anyway this was the era of Dougie Friedman or Doogie Friedman um, to, to native Scots. And uh, anyway, I remember a pre-season, I remember a pre-season friendly and I can't remember who we played, but we had a player called Carl Hoddle at the time, who was the brother, brother of Glenn Hoddle. And Glenn Hoddle, and actually I think, I think it was the same season we had Terry Gibson. So we had, there were some names, um, quite big names around at the time. Um, and there was a pre-season friendly and I was, I was, um, so caught up I loved Dougie Freeman he was like I loved him um and there were a few other players and I um and I went up to I, I remember being near the 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 um the changing room the entrance to the changing rooms and there's a few huddle of 
sporty type people around there in, in tracksuits and whatever else. And, um, and Dougie Friedman had just gone into the tunnel when I, I really wanted his autograph. So I went up to one of these people and was like, oh, um, with my pen and paper or a book and paper, you know, to get autographs. And was, oh, do you know when Dougie Friedman's coming out? And the guy had went to sign the thing and then realised I was asking for someone else and sort of went, oh, um, I, no, I don't know, whatever. And it turned out I went up to Glenn Hoddle and asked him where Dougie Friedman was for his autograph. Which, um, if, if there's one story that sort of encapsulates um, how much of a Barnet fan and how that was so much more important than whatever else was going on, I think it's probably that one. I'd love to tell you the year. I, I can't remember. It was a pre-season friendly. But um, an- another bit that for me that really sums it up, um, I remember a, I remember Orient at home on a Tuesday night. Um, God knows what cup. We scored four, and, and I couldn't even tell you what the score was that night. But I remember we scored four. I think Friedman scored two of those goals. Might have even been Mark Cooper. My, I, I, it's You know when you look far enough back, it's a bit of a blur. But I think that would have been about 95, 96 sort of time. And just that on the north, the old northwest terrace, um, that the sort of smell of all sorts of badness and burgers going on in the the little tea hut, um, and 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 under under the lights was just a very just had so it, we, the noise didn't keep in, but there was atmosphere. There really was atmosphere always on a Tuesday night. How about you, Ian? What uh, what's uh, for you early memories? I was definitely kind of already quite in football. I've been going to Arsenal for about four or five years before I went to a game. Um, at Underhill um, but I think it was just the kind of up close and personal nature of it all straight away kind of that access um, the fact that you could get the players autographs and pictures and all those kind of things and it's all very cliche but it, it's totally true when you're 10 years old and you're football mad that's that's what you want is that kind of feeling of really being part of it I think um, you know my first proper game was a, a night game as well and I think there's definitely something in that kind of Underhill under the lights we had Bournemouth at home in the League Cup and uh, we were 2-0 down from the first leg. It was when it was the two-legged early rounds of the League Cup. 2-0 down from the first leg. And I think after about 20 minutes, we were 2-0 down at home as well. Uh, Mark Steen was up front for them. And he scored, I think, both oh, of them. I was there that night. Yeah. And, and it was, you know, a bit. it went a bit flat. 2-0 down, 4-0 on aggregate. Kind of like, oh. And uh, I do wonder if the second half hadn't happened like it did if, if I would have got, you know, wanted to come back so soon. Because Barnet won 3-2. Um, and I remember, I think we hit the bar or cleared one off the line or something right at the death to avoid going into extra time. Um, and that was just, that was just it. I don't know. I can't, it's hard to describe. I was just in, I was hooked straight away. Um, and then, you know, as I say I was 10, 11 years old. It was £10 for a membership at the time and a, a quid to stand on the North Terrace, which again, for my dad, who was taking me a lot more affordable than football at Highbury. And, um, and as well, it did help that we did have a good team that year, you know, like Harrison, Curry, McLeish and a lot of very likeable players to kind of quickly fall in love with, if you will. And um, yeah, obviously that season was the year that we were top for ages and we fell away and we lost to Peterborough in the playoffs. But um, for a first season, despite the disappointment of that, it was pretty, I thought that's, you know, that's what it's going to be like every year um, up there. And obviously that wasn't uh, to be sustained. But um, yeah, I just think straight away, just being in it, part of it, it feel it feeling very kind of, um, what's the word? Like, just you know the the close nature of Underhill in in every aspect that was just yeah I, I was I was sold um, couldn't get enough of it um, go on then James what about you yeah so I guess um, I was a little bit later to the party than you guys um, I think I was probably fourteen or something like that when I when I first came to a game it was um, Cheltenham at home in two thousand and one I remember it very well because I think um, you know as as a, as a live 
football experience, I like I say, I had quite a sheltered experience. My dad sort of took me to his local club at the time, which was Watford. Um, so I didn't really have that much experience of going to games up to, up to that age. Uh, and I think the, the point that you sort of mentioned about sort of the proximity to it or the closeness to the pitch, um, you can actually see and hear everything that's going on on the pitch and that sort of thing sort of grabbed me straight away when I was when I was watching these games. Um, so I, I grew up in Potter's Bar, so Barnet was always sort of the, the local team to me um, around the corner, but I never got to go. I never sort of applied myself enough to go until the 2000-2001 season where obviously Barnet had started pretty well in the league and then they were just in free fall. And I decided that that was a point that I wanted to start going. So I got a cousin of mine and I got a friend of mine and we we, we went down to this to this game against Cheltenham. And um, like you said as well, it, it would be interesting to see actually if the games weren't as good as they were earlier on or as entertaining as they were earlier on, I wonder whether I would have become that involved in it. Um, but the Cheltenham game particularly, that 2-2 draw... Um, where Streven scored a, a late goal at our end and sort of celebrated in front of the North Terrace. Um, that was exciting. And then sort of Cheltenham equalised after that. It was sort of quite entertaining and the football standard was, you know, acceptable. Um, so that sort of thing was like, right, OK, this is this is actually quite enjoyable. So went along again the next couple of weeks um, that we played Rochdale and then that famous Torquay game, of course. Um, which we'll talk about later on, but um, obviously quite a significant part of Barnet's history. But that sort of experience of being there, being on the North Terrace um, with the crowd there, being that close to the pitch was something that was interesting. And then a bit further on from that, we played, obviously we got relegated that season. So my first game of the following season was against uh, Lee RMI. And uh, I stood on the North West Terrace that time. And the thing that really grabbed me about that was Yes, the game was the game was pretty nondescript. It was a one-all draw and what have you. But I remember looking and hearing over the over the pitch at the East Terrace and thinking, you know, you know, there's, the way they're celebrating goals, the way they're chanting and stuff. That's the place that I really need to be. And a few weeks after that, we played uh, a game against Haven't and Waterlooville. It was an FA Cup replay on a Tuesday night, and I think, as you alluded to as well, the night game and the circumstances of that particular game where it was Wayne Purse scored a hat-trick. And I believe it was, or it was very close to a record for the fastest ever hat-trick in the FA Cup. Like three, minute, three minutes yeah. or something, yeah. wasn't it? He scored it in. Yeah, something yeah. like three minutes. Wayne Purse scored a hat-trick in three minutes. And that that atmosphere that night and that sort of, you know, the celebrating goals. I never celebrated a goal like that where there's bodies everywhere and people are jumping around and you end up in a position on the terrace where you hadn't been before. You know, to a fourteen-year-old, just sort of thinking, "Wow, this is this is this is it. This is the best thing in the world." And then a couple of weeks later, we played Reading in a um, LDV Vans Trophy game at the time, and you know, Reading were a fairly big club. They were a top of um, Division Two, as it was then, weren't they? Division Two, yeah. So, so League One as it is now, and we beat them four-one, and that felt like quite a big deal. And again, the terrace was sort of quite exciting, good atmosphere, and, and all the goals were celebrated sort of quite manically, or it felt like it at the time, at least. So that felt, you know, I was, I was straight in. That was that was it. You know, and from that point onwards, I really got into it. And, you know, I, I went to my first away game around that sort of time as well. And, I, you know, that, that really grabbed me. That sort of, that, that was it for me. What I think was largely quite comforting about certainly my memories of Underhill is the 
the consistency and how ramshackle and unique the ground was. Um, so to kind of move on to, to Underhill itself, where obviously the, the, the home of so many of these early memories and kind of where where it all began for all of us in different ways supporting Barnet. Um, it's just thought for the benefit of anyone who is listening to this who hasn't, who never got the opportunity to go there, just kind of give them an idea of what it did look like. You know, it wasn't your conventional four-sided ground. Um, so to give a kind of overview of it, we had the six slash seven stands. I think it finished with seven, correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, Are you including the sh- the South End shed? There was, well, it was like a little golf stand, wasn't it? Like in the top, right, top, corner by the north terrace which it, blo- the, it blocked out the, the clock. bandstand it blocked out the clock as well which uh was yeah. a real shame and that was up who was that uh, for, for, for 10 points who was that clock sponsored by the barnet times. times barnet times barnet times yeah. yeah there you go yeah yeah it must have stopped yeah, the sponsorship in that last season or something but yeah that was because the away fans got moved there so we had this weird little stand what in the top right hand corner if you like because they needed seats for the away fans then you had the open north terrace was that a, a, a league stipulation then that you, you you had to give a certain quota of a away section? But um, yeah, because of course, yes, yeah, exactly. So the the south end for a long time was the away end, but they flipped it up to the north end and gave them the the shed to, moved, to, to, to meet around, the quota. It moved around quite a lot in those last few years. So you had yeah, the away bit was the north terrace, which was an open terrace behind the goal, the little weird temporary shed in the corner, and then they generally had half of the east terrace. So the east terrace ran the length of the pitch. Um, and that was a pretty good indicator from the other side of the ground, wasn't it? Of the slope from one side to the yeah. other. The way the roof goes was or yeah. went. You definitely know. You definitely know. You definitely noticed it more from when you were stood on the opposite. Or sorry, sat on the opposite side of the pitch. Yeah, you definitely, you definitely saw, saw the slope more from over there. Yeah, so you had the main stand on the other side of the ground from the East Terrace with the the dugouts in front, and the tunnel came out from there. You had the players' lounge underneath it, and that that was the posh side, if you like, um, which had blue seats, which was always a bit strange to me. I don't know if either you know why or the reason for that. I believe we got one from another club. I can't remember who it was, but someone, someone they knocked a stand down somewhere and we got some seats from it or something like that. That might not be true. I'm not sure. But yeah, no, so you've got the main stand and then flanking it on either side to run the length of the pitch. On one side of it, you had the northwest terrace, which was a bit like a continuation around the corner of the north terrace and that it was an open, open terrace that ran you know, a third of the pitch. Um, and then to the other side was the rather strange family stand, which from what I remember, that's where I sat in my first game there. You were quite far back from the pitch. And if you were in the back row of seats, you couldn't see the other end of the pitch very well. So I'm not really sure what the function yeah. of that was other than to have enough seats. But um, you had that there. And then in the corner, obviously, the Durham suite, the uh, clubhouse. Um, and then behind the goal, well, before our time, you might have seen the back end of it, Craig. We had the the West Bank that was kind of, the terrace before the East Terrace, where the the noise and whatever else was. Um, And then into the 90s, that was knocked down there. The temporary green seats uh, there for ages, which kind of tended to fluctuate on size. I think they were bigger when we were in the Football League and then smaller when we went down to the conference. That was often used in the way end. And then... (laughs) Those those seats on sale are returned. (laughs) (laughs) And then was it... Was it uh, 2008 where they built the the quite smart sort of modern south stand with the right colour seats... Um, behind the goal, I think they opened it for the Swindon game in the cup. Wasn't That's it? right. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. So that was yeah. That was what the ground kind of looked like. Um, so what I thought we'd do just to kind of is to go round and have a think about the different parts and why what we remember about them and why maybe they were unique or a bit different. Well, I, I think I, I think I sat or stood in all of them at some point. I think we I think we all must have done at some point. Um, apart from maybe the the the, the 
northeast seated stand that you spoke about with the where the away supporters were, were placed um i started on the north terrace um that, that, that sort of shallow terrace behind the goal uh, and like i said before the proximity to the pitch was 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 uh, was good but it, it was um you know it didn't really have much else going for it remember it sort of slanted because it went with the houses didn't yeah, it yeah. so it was it was bigger at, it was bigger at one end like there was more steps at one was end was than, than at the other end, wasn't there? Yeah, it went from about 10 at one end to three at the other, um, which so it kind of yeah slanted a bit like the roof of the East Terrace. It did it with the steps on that. Um, but one thing, the, the thing that really took me when I first stood there was that the fact that the houses behind, they could see straight across the pitch. It would have been actually quite a decent view, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, then that, you know, you, you mentioned the Torquay game. I seem to remember that... Um, that, that, that that was going on. There was a lot of people watching there. Um, do you remember it being quite an exciting moment when the ball managed to clear the, the net and go into the gardens around there? And then you see um, a little uh, official of the club um, run round and have to knock on the door and ask for his ball back. The, uh... <laughs> it was quite a remarkable thing for a professional football club, but probably not uncommon um, in, in, in other clubs. Because well, wasn't, that wasn't a short fence, so to clear it was quite, no, yeah. uh, quite, quite um, an achievement to clear the fence from, from wherever you were shooting from. Well, any, any, any football moment that generates a, you know, that's a, that's a fantastic thing. <laughs> With that fence, I think one of the most Barnet things ever was, um, do you remember when we won the league, obviously in 2005 against Halifax, and they had a really impressive banner provided by the sponsors uh, that said Champions. Have I imagined this, or did it actually happen that it took ages to unhook the, the, I'm sure it took ages to unfurl. Like it came half down, so it sort of said champ, uh, and then like yes, yeah. I, I like to think that we were hedging our bets there because because we were three one up, weren't we? With about ten minutes to go, and that's when they started doing it. And I think well, it must have taken about five or ten minutes. I think they managed to get it down by the time the full time whistle was there. But yeah, it just it just was a amazing sort of summary of what the club can be like sometimes when it took 10 minutes to take a banner down when we tried to do it too early it, it it's in, in some ways timing was perfect uh you know but i um yeah the north area there just gonna say the northwest which was um obviously to the side of that was um a bizarre little place when you think about it. I spent a lot of time time there, and um, one of the, the features of that, and we call it a feature, that I used to find quite amusing was that um, often at half time, people would go and you know spend a penny, as you'd say, and go and use the toilet. And um, uh, the the ladies' toilets were right next to the away changing room, so often um, w- you know, women in the area, as in that you were standing, would come back from their sort of half time visit. And uh, would have been able to hear the the, the team talk or, or whatever was going on in the away dressing room, and you'd hear stories of oh they're in they're having a bad one in there <laughs> or whatever or you know <laughs> you know or, or whatever the thing was, and that was always um, I always thought that was quite a a bizarre feature of that stand that it that, that the nearest toilets um, yeah were right next to the the away changing room. Well, I feel you've got quite a good inside view because I know like James, I started on the north terrace as well, um, but the, and and I think that's kind of a lot a lot of people seem to as younger fans go there and then. Uh, there was a sort of the graduation process over to the East East Terrace when you were ready to go and join in with all the singing and what have you. And we'll come on to that in a minute. But um, the Northwest, I know, that was kind of looked at as a strange place, like you say. And certainly for mm. someone who I may have stood there for a friendly or something like that just to go there once or twice. It did have a certain reputation about the sort of characters and, and uh, 
the, the vibe, shall we say, over there during games was not always the most positive. I don't know if you can shed any more light on that. It, um, it was... <laughs> thing is, when you don't know different, any different, it's... it's um, you just accept that it must just be terrible all the time. You know, <laughs> that was kind of the... The feeling there were some particularly neg- they didn't even all get on they 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 disagreed in the different types and levels of badness that was going on on the pitch. It was the best thing you know it, they genuinely were negative but what but what I would say about that as well is that when it was good it, it um you know that kind of thing of when someone's always bit downbeat when you actually see them smile and happy it sort of ma- it really feels a bit different and it makes it feel quite special and I can remember yeah, I can remember people being. Weirdly, when the the day we went down against Torquay, people being quite positive in there, it got it was it was packed, it was rammed. There were people climbing over the back of the the thing to get in, um, and yeah, I remember it being hugely busy. And one and one other story I remember from there is um, we played Middlesbrough in the League Cup uh, on a Tuesday night, um, and Paul Merson played for for Middlesbrough that night, and I remember. I remember him getting some some appalling abuse from the East Terrace. Um, I certainly learned some new words. I would have been sort of I don't know seven or eight, nine, that kind of age. And I remember um, I remember saying to my dad, "Why do they hate him so much?" And he couldn't really explain, but certainly the the gist of it was that Paul Merson had had some marital issues and. Um, and and the East Terrace was particularly keen on reminding him, and uh, and and certainly uh, maybe maybe trying to tear open some some wounds that had tried to heal. So it was yeah. I remember I, I remember I remember you talk about the East Terrace, and I will come there. But when you looked at the East Terrace and you saw the singing and whatever else, there was also some vulgar stuff going on over there, <laughs> um, and some some real some some real unpleasantness, you know. Yeah, that when you're when you're 14, that does sound and seem like the best thing in the world. Maybe it was something about that side of the ground because, you know, when we'll, we'll talk about it in more detail later on about when we moved over to the main stand. Um, but you know, we were talking about how there so there wasn't that sort of there was that sort of negative vibe over there. But you know, when we were, you know, languishing in the bottom end of the football league towards the end of 20 um, the 2010s or sorry, the, the 2000s, um, we certainly became negative. And if you remember what this website used to look like on after a game where we lost 2-0 at home to whoever, you know, it must have been something about that side of the ground that breeded negativity, or bred negativity, sorry. Well, to be fair, James, and it's probably an item for another time, but I remember what it was like to... So to, we, we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll cover away games and whatever, but I remember... Um, the immediate aftermath of an away loss on that that coach on the way home was a very dark place for the mm. first hour. <laughs> um, yes, it really was. Before, yeah. before. And, and I think I probably took it the worst, but we'll cover that later on, shall we? You weren't even always happy when we won. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is true. That is true. A complex character in his teens, um, like many of the characters we were talking about there on the North and Northwest Terrace, because I always thought when I moved over, to the east you looked at it and you, I just saw on you know a rainy day at home to Northwich or whatever like why why are you not why not standing under a bit of shelter why why would you subject yourself to that but I guess habit um I I, I do you know what I, I I still feel like I owe my dad a conversation on that because he used to religiously take us there season tickets there you know or I think it was, I do you know what I actually actually it may have been actually which is a funny thing so you mentioned earlier that there was that kid for a quid style thing I think with an adult membership or you could get a membership and then it was a pound to go I think that's how it works so 10, 10 or 15 pounds for a membership and then it was a pound for every game you went to and um, obviously looking for it to be affordable 
and um, you could you could use that I think on the north or northwest. And um, as you've already mentioned, the view from behind the goal was particularly poor. And although the the view from the northwest wasn't perfect, if you went as central as possible or to as far to, as near the middle as possible, you could actually get a a half decent view of about <laughs> two thirds of the pitch, which was um, which, which was maybe maybe um, a little better than um, some of the views from the North Terrace. So I think that I think it was that kid for a quid with the membership that um, that, that perhaps attracted us there. But my goodness, what a what an appalling place! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was. Um, yeah, I, I, but it's funny. Great actually. people, actually, great people there, though. Great people. They were they were miserable, great people. Yeah, no. Well, I think you know. So we all we all had the move to the East Terrace around a similar sort of time. It's funny that money seems to come into it again. I remember my first season ticket for the East Terrace being fifty five quid, which for twenty three conference games was a great value. I remember being so excited that. Um, I had season ticket number zero 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 one. Uh, I think for two or three seasons because I couldn't wait to get my form in uh, quickly enough in a race against myself. I was that sort of teenager. Um, but yeah, I mean the East Terrace itself, like you were saying earlier, James. I think for a while that was the best place in probably all of our worlds. Um, it seemed very exciting. It felt like it was very loud. It felt like there were you know so many characters to aspire to be when you were kind of in your teens and and just loving every part of the experience um I suppose and I almost don't want to ask it is were we looking at it through maybe not rose tinted glasses but teenage glasses and maybe you know didn't realize that maybe it wasn't as loud as we thought it was it wasn't as as mental I don't know almost certainly yes um I, I think there would I think there would have been times particularly when we were you know the 0304 0405 when we were having a particularly successful season obviously the 0304 was a playoff season 0405 was the, the the title winning season so undoubtedly there would have been times there where genuinely yes it was as good as we remember it but i am i would have thought that quite a lot more often than not outside of those two seasons it really wasn't quite what we thought it was um, and we would look at it through those sort of rose-tinted glasses of, you know, it was the best place on earth for 90 minutes. Do you know what I mean? For me, the real question is, does it, well, or, or not the real question, but does it matter? Because if it felt like that, and I think it did feel like that, is that not everything? Is that not what it's all, I mean, being on the empty away terrace at the, the RMI and seeing us win, um, however many goals it was, four or whatever it was, nil, or whatever, you know, one of those kind of games, being at Underhill the same, seeing Chris Plummer get a, a last-minute uh, winner or equaliser, I, I, I forget. Yeah, no, the winner against Gravesend. The winner against Gravesend. That goal, that, that was amazing. Hero of a player, really top-quality centre-back. Does it matter whether if you stood on the other side of the ground it wasn't that loud or whether, you know, it didn't set car alarms off just outside, they were parked outside? It does, I don't know that that matters. When you were inside it and you're in the middle of it and you, and, you know, to... To, to, to misquote um, Fever Pitch, that kind of moment when you look around and see everyone else that's jumping up and down and is excited for the same reason you are, it, it probably doesn't matter um, whether or not it was as special from the outside as it was on the inside, if you were on the inside, uh, where we were. Yeah, you are, you are probably, I think you're right there, to be honest. And I think it's interesting what you were saying, James, that, yeah, with success definitely came more of those moments. Um and I can't quite pinpoint because there was a turning point where all of a sudden it stopped being as fun 
for a while. But then what, what was strange was I felt like we could get it back for certain games. Like obviously, the last ever match there was, you know, you couldn't have written the script for the way that panned out against Wickham and the penalty save and all that. Um, and that, that was just, you know, incredible. But we had quite a few in between as well, like where it it felt like it had died down a bit. You know, the Colchester game in the FA Cup, I was in the, in the middle of it for all that. Um, yeah. There was a few others around that time where, you know, big game, Rochdale last other season when we stayed up, um, where it did sort of feel like it was back. Um, but it was just difficult, I don't know, to, it wasn't always, and again, maybe that is a thing with age, perhaps, that it, it you know, your your way of supporting the club perhaps changed a little bit. There, there, there was almost like sort of like a perfect storm of what sort of contributed to, I guess, the perceived downturn in in what the East Terrace was. Um, there was the sort of the form of the football. The football sort of got a little bit more difficult to watch over the over the course of time, and also the sort of reconfiguration of the ground as it was at the time. Because the way you described Underhill earlier, where away fans were at the bottom of the East Terrace, is in the south end of the East Terrace. And then at some point, I think it was around about 2006, they moved them to the top. And that was sort of almost, a, it was a weird one because like the, 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 the turnstile that you're used to going through, this spot that you were used to standing on where the singers were, you remember just to the right of the halfway line on the north side, when that changed, it almost changed the dynamic a little bit. And then I remember sort of moving myself around the East Terrace a little bit and standing in different places um and personally it just didn't feel like the atmosphere ever sort of recovered from that i don't know whether that was a contributing factor for you guys or not or 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 what happened there the other thing i would add to that is that you know when we moved over there i think we we were us and the people that we were with were in in an age range of probably 15 to 17 that 18 that kind of that era but when you hit 18 19 20 and pubs become the most exciting thing in the world and um and, and, and i suppose you, you in, a, in about two or three year period from about 16 to eighteen nineteen, you go from wanting to be one of the first people in the ground when it opens with your program and your can of coke or whatever and, and listening to the music and, and, and soaking up the atmosphere and watching them warm up to wondering whether you can sneak in a quick pint before the, the kickoff in, in in the pub and 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 that kind of change of um I think that change of priority and also as you make friends and and it becomes a community thing um yeah I just it changes your relationship with the with with the club and with the game and with with the match day I think a little bit I don't know if that's perhaps a bit of a territorial thing as well because yeah we were you know I think as you say in that in that time frame when we were quite good and we were all of a certain age and there was a lot of people we knew in there um you know that it felt like our spot and I think James that's a really good point about the move where it switched which half the terrace they used. And then you did have like, and it's you know nothing on anyone, but a lot of new people who maybe weren't there before, a lot of younger people who, when you're that sort of age, you're particularly, you know, negative perhaps about anyone who's younger than you being worthy perhaps. Well, just a bit precious. Yeah. Just a bit yeah. precious about That's, what was ours. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember actually, and I blame you for this then, Craig, because as I recall, you and I for about a season ended up standing down the far end of the East Terrace, which... Was basically the northwest with the roof. If I, if the characters were around. <laughs> no, Ian. Uh, I, I really think we'll get more of an insight into this game if we stand right next to Steve Percy. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It was different. To be fair, though, we we I take. But then I would add to that, um, and it's and, and I thought you put it or one of you put it perfectly. The whole thing about the relationship with 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 it all because. I think that there's a there there are days and times in your life where you wanna 
sort of let go and sing and jump around and, and make a racket. And then there become other times where actually what's quite nice about football is that you it's going on and you can watch it, but you can have a chat with people as well and be excited about it and have highs and lows and all those moments as, as well. But And and that's what was nice about Underhill in some ways was there was a bit of the ground, there were, sorry, there were lots of bits of the ground where you could find your your people, your your place and have and have from it what you wanted. I, I um, think that's, well, that's an abiding memory of like, if you look at, if you take a step back, like you think about the way the ground was. There were so many little parts where there was like that little group were over there, that group of, you know, do you know what I mean? You, you recognised those little social groups that had maybe formed either because of going to the matches or over time there. Um, and I think that's what made it special. And I guess that's very hard to replicate anywhere else when something's been there for so long like that. Um, and I think that was definitely a part of its charm, certainly on the East Terrace where you had yeah the, the noisy bit, but also if you sort of went down the terrace, you knew almost week to week exactly who you'd see at each kind of point as you walked from you know where the corner flag was up to your spot. Um, and I think there was something quite special in that, definitely. Yeah, and I, I think the social group that I sort of attached myself to at the time, um, certainly through, I think more so through away games, I think I started meeting people through away games and then when that sort of group started, they moved themselves over to the main stand. Um, I don't know what the reason was. I think they just wanted a better view of the pitch. Or maybe it's maybe they, maybe, maybe they got themselves to an age where they didn't want to throw themselves around and drink, uh, sorry, and sing and all that sort of stuff. Drinking was definitely a thing. Um, so then I sort, of, I sort of took that decision to go, right, well, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to go and sit over there. It might have been half influenced by the fact that I was doing a little bit of work on the side for the club at the time and getting free season tickets. And I had a choice of where I could go in the ground that might've had an influence on it. But at the same time, that sort of meant, well, I'm going to go and sit with them and I'm going to go and sort of do whatever. And that, I guess, gave me the impression that I sort of alluded to earlier on. And I said, you know, maybe the atmosphere wasn't as good as we remember it because I remember sitting in the main stand and I could barely hear the East Terrace sometimes. Most of the time, in fact. And, you know, maybe that coincided with a bit of the football, but then, as people sort of spread out a little bit across the ground, especially when the south stand opened as well, it sort of dispersed and it sort of um, uh, the East Terrace sort of lost its magic, I guess. Yeah, well, I think the south stand was a weird one because it kind of it came in and we a few of us. I know I, I went there a little bit and it kind of yeah you say it fragmented a bit. So you had some of us in the main stand, a lot of people, a few people were still in the East Terrace, but yeah, the south. It, it never really got an identity. I tell you what, if they put a bar under that stand, that would have... Uh, yes. <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> I think that would have been... Yeah, uh, absolutely. 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 <laughs> With the, the South stand, obviously, um, coming in 2008, obviously it was in its other guises for a bit before, um, but it wasn't really for us, was it, with the away end? It, I don't know, in a way, like you said, it almost was a bit divisive because some of us went over there some of us stayed put some of us went to the main stand um it, it looks quite smart but there wasn't really much of note in there i don't know about if it meant anything much to either of you well uh, the only real memory i have of it properly was the, the the night that it opened the swindon game where you know we went there in the first time because it was a bit of a novelty to go in the new stand and it just so happened to be the night where we got to the fourth round of the fa cup you know that 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 really was the main abiding memory of it other than its various iterations like you described with the green seats other than that if it had had a bar behind it like you said before it would have been perfect wouldn't it it would have been great well we would have never got out of there would we i mean i would say you know the thing i would add though is that 
I think quite quite accurately, quite articulately, we've explained or you've talked about how every different pocket of the ground had its own people and feeling and place. Um, and but but I but, but I imagine like us movers on whatever people that moved around the ground and never really found a home anywhere, never belonged to, never were part of any one stand. And I and I think that there was something about a new stand that meant, oh, maybe we can put our kind of footprint on this and it can become become ours in a way that everyone else who went seemed to have their place and we'd always kind of followed or been part of something else. So there was there was something about the fact that because it was such a special thing at Underhill to have your place, wherever that was, um, to really have somewhere that, oh, that's where they go, would have been quite a nice thing. And I guess that, yeah, it was an important part of being at Underhill was having your place. Yeah. Yeah, well, then obviously the only place we haven't touched on yet is the family stand, which if we're in the south, looking to the left, it'd be there. I think I mentioned when we talked about the ground, a bit of a bizarre little creation that I can't can't really see other than other than to fill a bit of space with seats for requirements. I don't know if, I think I, w- I was there when I was mascot because I think that's where they put your tickets um, that they gave you. Um, but other than that, it didn't offer much of a view. Uh, well, if you if you if you remember, Ian, it it was also the disabled space, so that was where the people with disabilities would also be put because there was a little bit of room in front um, for a wheelchair space. So I think it, if you if you look around the ground, because as as has been described quite well, it was so tight. That was the one area that had that that space and room for carers, of course. I think it was. I think it was more of a functional stand than anything else. I think it was there to get us over the requirement of seats because I'm sure it used to be a terrace, and you put the seats in there just to get ourselves over the, whatever the number was at various times in the 90s or 2000s. Because you'd be able, to, you, you go to sit at the back of that stand, and if, if you sat in the corner of the back of the stand, you could see a third of the pitch. At, at most so it's only redeeming feature really was its proximity to the bar i think most of the times that i sat in there was coming down from the main stand about five to ten minutes before half time and just sitting there or standing there just to see if anything happened and then walking straight into the bar the moment it opened yeah i remember when Can we had what was that what was that fantastic initiative one of the best initiatives ever under that's what i was going to come um, into there go on go on where, yeah. where they i think they did it, I think, in both the final two seasons. Though, where it was like a short-term Durham membership, they uh, you could you could buy for a fee, and it meant you got access with a little card or something to the bar during the match. Because they took away that access, didn't they? Sort of when we got back in the league, um, and it was all corporate. Because um, I was going to think as well that that family stand bit. I remember a few times if anyone who was a bit of a name was at the game, that would be where you'd run down to get an autograph. Certainly when Arsenal reserves played at Underhill. I've definitely chased, yeah. chased Wenger down that bit a few times to get him to sign my team sheet or whatever. Um, well, it was the way out, wasn't it? It was the way out and yeah. the way to the, the kind of the, the, the posh bit, if you like, of the, of the ground, if there was one. But when they, when they opened that Durham thing, because didn't we... I can't remember what we did for the... It was the second to last time we ever went to a game there. We played Cheltenham at home in the 2013 season. And I remember we, we, we had dinner in the Durham Street or something... Um, and I seem to remember watching about six minutes of the football in the snow from the family stand well, before well, yeah, deciding yeah. it was just yeah, too yeah, cold yeah. So and too bad. I, I remember, so, so we got that, so that there was the, the option that yeah, you could upgrade your season ticket and you'd go in there. And, and it was like, so you've got access to the bar, yes. Can you go to the bar and get a drink during the game? Yes, but to be clear, the very, very small narrow windows at the top uh, that, that actually, if you climbed on about three chairs and a table, you could look out and see the pitch. 
there will be a blind that comes down so you won't be able to view the pitch at the same time as drinking. And it's like, well, if anything, that's a bonus. <laughs> you know, I, if, the reason I've come in here for a drink is because it's terrible out there. The last thing I want is to be able to see it from my... Uh, from from my haven of uh, alcohol in here, you know that that was um, a good time because because that like you say that that place the Durham Suite did change over time, didn't it? Because it used to be the place that you used to go before the game because you used to go into you know we used to, the the routine used to be you go to the Weavers Weavers which is a pub just up the top um, in New Barnet. Then you because uh, you get in there for eleven o'clock opening time, and then you'd head down to the Durham Suite and that before the game. That was just the routine. And like you say, when they made it all sort of corporate for the football league, which sort of made sense, we couldn't get in there, so we just stay in stay in the Weaver um, and later the Pavilion. But the Durham Suite they took that away, and when that came back, and when they did that ticket, it was it was great, wasn't it? It was just a great way to sort of. Uh, Enjoy enjoy a few drinks during the game as well as before and after. And the only thing as well with that with that ticket and what I did love that when it was you know the the fans bar and it was everyone in there, but with the let's call it exclusivity that offered, um, we had a few quite good chance meetings with people in there. I mean, obviously when Scott McLeish came back on loan, I remember us pestering him. I think we had a Friday night game with Torquay. I remember chatting with him for a bit, probably mostly against his will at the bar. Um, and then obviously that one we were on about the Cheltenham game, like it was, it was like one of those sort of weird dreams you have where, you know, it doesn't all quite make sense. We were in there and obviously that was when Edgar Davids was the manager. So we had a bit of time with Edgar. Um, then his assistant Ulrich came in and, uh, Hero. then, uh, Alistair Campbell, the, uh, spin doctor for the, the yeah. Labour Party of the 90s. <laughs> was it, was, he was, was that the same game? Was that the same game as, um... We, we, we more or less chased John Watson out of the Durham suite yes, to get him, yes, to, take, that, get him yeah. to take a photo with us. With Ricky George as well. Ricky George, yes, that's it. It was a, it was a head of... I, but the, I just think... that. Do you get that elsewhere? The, the, uh, grounds that are bigger, do they allow for that kind of... that, that The opportunity for all those people to be in, place, in the same place at one time? I, the, 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 the moment with Edgar Davids... And with, um, I remember vividly that moment because I remember that um, someone asked him who the best player he'd ever played with was and, and someone else in our group managed to answer it on, their, on his behalf and asked if it was Paul Scholes. And Edgar Davids, having never played with Paul Scholes, uh, naturally inquired in a thick Dutch accent whether he was drunk or he said, uh, no, no more drinks for this guy, I think. Yeah, was the... I, thought, I thought it was, a, <laughs> no more beers for you guys, <laughs> was, yeah. was yeah. how I recall it, but it's probably somewhere in the middle of those two. He, he was great, but I um, I was going to say, there was there was that moment with them, but the another exciting moment there, do you remember when, I think when you're a, when you're a lower league football fan in particular, the, the dream is is that cup draw against a really, really big club and uh, they probably don't come bigger than Manchester United away at Old Trafford and I remember we'd just been promoted back to the Football League it was our pretty much our, our it was our first or second second round I think or third round but it was the but it was the that first year back and we a lot for whatever reason a lot of us were in there when that draw was made I think it was pr- pr- prior to a game or I think just before a football match I can't remember what it was in any case the place was it went mental, you know. When, when and I think it went mental before the words "buck" because everyone knew the number, so it went number it went three. number three. There you go, yeah, number three. But and before it could even say Barnet, the they were the, genuinely chairs and tables were upside down. I don't know how or what happened, but it, it just it it um it was like a scene out of a you know a film or something. It was mental. it was like a very um, important goal had been scored. 
and yeah. just people were running around the bar everywhere and and ju- it was like one of those scenes that you saw quite a lot in the world cup in 2018 and the euros where pint glasses were flying and uh, i'm not exaggerating that that is genuinely true that that is what happened when that draw came out and silly things like that in that in that place just sort of almost add to the sort of the romance of what the durham suite was and then later on you obviously had the pavilion which was was the path was the path ever as ever as good yeah, not really know. no so it was it was a, it was uh well because the cricket club obviously the the cricket club that backed onto the the football club so that you had barnet cricket club that was at the south end of the ground and you had their pavilion and I can't remember the. They, had, in, they I, had a rough deal, didn't they? I can't, <laughs> they remember, I, I, I can't remember the ins and outs of what happened there, but um, either way, that pavilion became a Barnet FC pavilion for, for match days, and uh, yeah, you didn't quite get the same romance there, but that was the sort of the place to be before the game, wasn't it? And it just didn't really have that same feel to it, but it did have its moments like that, that Wickham game well, where yeah, everyone yeah. was out there and everything. It was early that, that, season, it did have early its moments season, then. Early season and end of season games were, were great because obviously you had the cricket pitch and the sun was out and, and it, when you think of it like that, you think, oh, that was brilliant. It was absolutely fantastic. But yeah, I think those kind of dark winter afternoons when it, it wasn't the biggest in there either. Um took ages to get served, as I recall, quite often. There was those plastic glasses uh, it was at a horrible orange paint job on the walls, if I remember right. Mm. Um, didn't they for a bit try and make it like a, a sports bar? So it, was, it wasn't necessarily just barn. It had all sorts of other random stuff for a short period. Well, and Because they tried to open it in the week. It open during the week. Only for a short time, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was yeah. a bit of a depressing place. I remember, obviously, I'd just turned about 18, 19. So the pub is still, like you said, very exciting. Then I think I remember going to watch an Arsenal Man United game there on a Sunday. And I think it was, there were about six of us in there. Um, and it was just, yeah, it wasn't wasn't really a thing. Um, it was it was synonymous. It was synonymous with that sort of late underhill, sort of slow descent into, you know, the really oh, the really really <laughs> tricky. Like the, the, it was it was the apathy, wasn't it? It was the apathy of what the end of underhill became, um, with the football being pretty depressing and the pavilion being quite depressing. Like Tuesday night games in February March when you'd be sat in there with. 15 other people and you're about to go and watch us lose again to I don't know Grimsby or Swindon or something stupid like that it was it was almost a perfect metaphor for what those last few years were yeah it it was I think in defense of the the club it's really hard I don't think with these things there's always a clear rhyme or reason why some things work and some things don't uh, again to misquote from somewhere but I I think that the, the Durham suite had had something special about it. A, the name. Um, it was, um, you know, named after a player who'd been very successful with the football club and had passed away, sadly. And, but, but that gave it a, a kind of bit more of a personal feel. Um, again, later, sort of, when it became the... Whatever it was, it got renamed. It, again, never had the same charm. And um, and it was it was the natural way out for the players. So if you were in there... There was a level of exclusivity. There was a level of proximity to the the pitch, and and it was also the place the players had to leave via. Um, so it just you felt amongst it. You felt part of it, um, and and it felt like a proper bar. It you know it 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 it, it was a proper football club, sports bar, bar connected to or, or club bar, and um, yeah, I, I would I have some sympathy for why the for, for why the club never quite managed to recreate that at the at the pavilion. Um, but as you say, on a summer's day, 
um, few of them in a, in a football season, but on a summer's day when you could you could sit out there on the grass, maybe watch the cricket. Um, I even remember, do you remember, they used to unveil the kits and do a cricket day where the, the first team of the Barnet team used to play against the, the first team of the crickets team. And that was a really good day out, actually. That was that, that was a... That had a bit of fun about it, and and a, yeah. a bit of a community. We'd, we'd, un- we'd unveil the kit. We'd unveil the kit without a sponsor, and generally the generally like shirt will be available in October, and this is July. That was generally, and, and, that was genuinely the and, way it went, wasn't it? And guess what? It's 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 a slightly darker shade of orange than last year. Yeah, pretty much the feel, you know. Absolutely. Ah, it's their club. They do what they want with it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I just wanted to finish just on the Durham, uh, just bringing it back. Obviously, we, we talked really, really fondly of it. Just, it was also a bit of a strange place in, at times. I mean, I remember they played radio commentary once in there of a game that was going on that could have helped us win the title. Which, yes. <laughs> like, what a bizarre thought that is, sitting in a, in a pub in silence to listen to Hereford v. Carlisle on the radio. And uh, yes. the other bizarre memory, which just came back to me then, was uh, spending quite literally all night in there um, on the local elections night in 2006, uh, having done all the KBA stuff, literally there till 5.30 in the morning. I, I don't know, we must have had the, I don't know, the, the news on or something uh, to ultimately hear the news we didn't want in relation to how they wanted things to go for the KBA. Um, so I feel like, yeah, quite a lot of my formative years were spent in that place. A lot of them quite happy memories, but some of them... Yes, yeah, Certainly, when the, when the club used to throw some parties at certain times of the year, there was like Halloween parties and all that sort of stuff, and St George's parties and a, a St George's party. I mean, there's all sorts of stories we can go into about that, and probably will at a later date. But yeah, like you say, like a lot of formative years spent in that place, and it was always the same people as well. It was always the same people from the start to the finish. It was always the same faces. And again, like like we were talking about with the East Terrace, and wherever you stood or sat in the in in Underhill, the Durham Suite had that sort of familiarity about it where it just felt a bit like home. That's 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 how I'd probably summarise it. So that brings to an end the first episode of the Downhill Second Half podcast. Uh, thanks very much for listening if you managed to get this far. Um, and do let us know what you thought. We'd love a bit of feedback to help us kind of develop this further. We've got a few ideas ourselves where we might take this from here and who we might see if we can try and persuade uh, to come on and share some Underhill stories and memories with us. Um, so till next time, cheers for listening. Can I take Robinson on? He's Most people would say I was mad. It's so, Brian, second, David. Lovely stuff from Curry, not a bad try, and that's a 